Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris, along with Sean O'Toole with Property Radar, and this is episode 36. On the show this week, we have David Erard of Armanino. Armanino is one of the top 25 CPA and business consulting firms in the United States, and David comes with over 20 years in the CPA practice with some very unique specialties in things like distressed debt and working with REITs. This week, we talk about a lot of changes happening in 2021 under a new administration, taxes at both the national and the state level, things that small businesses and real estate investors are worried about, and even down to to 10, uh, 1031 exchanges and opportunity zones, you will not want to miss this week. We are very excited today to have David Erard with Armanino. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> David, you have a very interesting specialty, which we'll get to in a second. But if people aren't familiar with Armanino, can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, Armanino uh, is a full service accounting firm. Uh, we're probably more mostly well-known up in uh, Northern California where the firm started and we're headquartered. Um, but in the last couple of years in particular, we started moving uh, into different markets. So big presence in uh, Southern California now as well. Um, started to move into Denver, Texas, um, Idaho, a few other just uh, opportunities that we've really liked to get, uh, get involved in some other cool spots throughout the country. Okay. And you have worked, spent plenty of time with the the, the big four accounting firms, as they say. <laughs> and I, I read your list of specialties, and it's it's pretty unique. I don't think I've ever seen this specialty attached to a CPA. Distress, debt matters, real estate investment, trust, trust tax consulting. How on earth did you fall into these specialties? Well, I worked, uh, so I started with one of the big four and worked there for several years. And um, when moved to a, a different firm before Armanino, continued working with a lot of the same clients. And as those clients started to evolve, um, the way I'd think about it in, say, 2006, 2007, 2008, a lot of the big players, because of the distress, started having difficulty raising new funds in kind of the, the areas that they had been focused on in the past. And so I started to see with at least with a couple of our clients, a big shift toward distressed debt and toward REITs. And so we went from really not working on any REITs, say in maybe 2007-ish, to having like our main client base being REITs and REIT-focused or and distressed debt-focused funds. So it was a function of what, um, you know, as the clients evolved and, you know, reacted to the last downturn, we had to evolve with them and learn about REITs and distressed debt and just kind of learn a whole bunch of nuanced things. Uh, you know, distressed debt by itself is fairly nuanced. When you marry a distressed debt with a REIT or a real estate investment trust, um, there's a whole lot of other issues that come along with that. So it was really, uh, call it a little bit of a baptism by fire back when we just had to, uh, to keep up with our clients. Uh, or keep hopefully keep in front of them to some degree. That we we had to, yeah, <laughs> had had to go, uh, had to really dive in and learn those things. And it was uh, time; it was quite a challenge. But I've got to say, it's been it was really an invaluable learning experience, and um, has has really served me and and a, you know the team of people I work with very well. Most of your clients on that front are still going to be larger. You're not doing helping the mom and pop investor for the most part. So you're look, working still with more institutional size uh, clients? I'd say as a, as a general proposition, yes, the clients tend to be larger. But as a um, as with Armanino, um, we, we don't really say have a specific client size we target. And I've, I've worked with kind of firms that are just starting and doing their first deals. I've also worked with like individual investors who might like a piece of property that's subject to a troubled debt. And so I've worked through a few transactions where that's that's one means of getting to the asset that people want. So yeah, by and large, I would say that space tends to be occupied a lot more by bigger players than smaller, but I've certainly seen you know, smaller players go in and we've helped them navigate a few of the little nuances you got to deal with. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, California is like New York when it comes to distressed debt. If you can do it in California, you can do it anywhere, right? <laughs> it's uh, and it's you're, somewhat regulated, yeah. You know, so Armanino has, you know, like accounting, tax, audit, et cetera. And where do you fall within that kind of, uh, you know, purview? 
So I'm a I'm a partner in our tax practice. My specialty okay. is income tax, uh, state taxes, federal taxes, um, REITs, private equity, those types of things. Um, and I, I tend to partner with um, other partners within the firm who have the you know, same industry specialty as I do. So we've got a really our audit practice, especially we do a lot of work with this with lending funds. Um, our consulting group on the technology side does a lot of work with uh, private equity, starting to get a lot more traction with real estate. So it's really just within the firm. I'm a tax partner, but we we try to attack things kind of on an industry basis instead of as I'm going to go in and try to be a tax guy and only help a client on a tax thing, rather be a little bit more holistic. So hopefully I can speak well enough about some of the other issues that clients will deal with and know when I've got to bring somebody in. But we've we've tried to intentionally. Me, Armanino thinks the same way as a firm. We're really not trying to come in and say be just a really good tax person or a really good audit person or a really good consultant. We're trying to come in and be a really good partner to our clients with what you know, whatever help they may need with their businesses. You know, some some as you know, some firms are really big and sophisticated and have a lot of infrastructure behind them. They have people that deal with things. Others don't. And so we're trying to figure out we we you know, sometimes our role is to coordinate with a very sophisticated CFO who's really well versed in all of the tax and audit issues. Other times it's coming in with a firm that's just getting into a space and a lot of how do I do this type of questions. That's great. Um, Aaron didn't know this when he booked you, but we've, I've actually been an Armanino tax client for many years. So oh, well, good. now you glad, me. Now glad to hear that. <laughs> so no gotcha questions. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, that means I can, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think it's the opposite, Aaron. I think it's a fair game for anything. <laughs> okay, great. How does it feel to be a CPA headed into 2021? Oh, probably the same way it feels to be a lot of things heading into 2021. I, I think we're we're all having to adapt to things that you know are unique in my lifetime. Certainly, you know, with starting from you know with Armanino, we're really fortunate to have a really good technology platform to to work from. You know, so we've had some adaptation to people being outside the office and and having to work remotely. You know, we've been forced into that. Um, some of our clients, uh, I'd say a lot more of the adapting has just been with clients who have tended not to have the best infrastructure and really like paper-based systems. And, you know, how do we get information when you're, you're talking to somebody who might go into the office one or two days a week for a limited window to sign checks? And if they have time to get us the information, we need to do the, the tax and audit work. So I'd say the adaptation has been a lot of different things. Um, and we'll probably delve into some of those as we talk through different items on the, the cast here. But uh, there, there's just been, I'd say, figuring out that the, probably the biggest challenge, quite honestly, is figuring out, you know, we we're able to get our jobs done day to day. So that hasn't really been the challenge. More just, you know, how do we maintain our culture without people being together? How do we... Um, you know, how do we go out and meet people in the market when you're not out able to meet people in the market? So you're just kind of adapting some things to um, make up for not the, the lack of in-person contact. And, you know, quite honestly, the in-person contact is really one of the more fun parts of any job. I think that's what makes any job worth doing. You know, it's the, the clients you work with, the people you work with, the culture of the office, those water cooler discussions. So it's figuring it, a lot of the adapting is just trying to figure out how to maintain some, you know, make sure people know that we care, making sure that, um, you know, everybody's got different challenges because of the way we're having to do things and schools being closed. So just a lot of, um, I'd say we've, we've trying to be as flexible as we can be and still meeting the needs of clients and without, without overwhelming people. Real estate is a very uh, paper-heavy industry, so that's uh, sometimes a challenge <laughs> if you're working with clients that aren't uh, paperless. <laughs> that is true. It's it's uh, a little bit the opposite end sometimes of Silicon Valley, which has a lot of really new, uh, a lot of slick stuff that um, they're really comfortable with. And I'd say for real estate, it tends to be maybe a little slower to adapt um, and uh, you know take on new things and new ways. But we're, we are seeing, uh, but one thing I'm really 
pleased with is both on the client side and, and internally. I, I really am proud of the way everybody has been able to adapt and the way that we have been able to get through 2020. So going into 2021, I feel like we're still holding on a little bit and trying to get through the nuance of not doing things the way that we would like to and being in person. Um, we've got a year under our belt of working this way. And I'd say it's at this point, it feels like we're closing in on the end of a marathon. We hope things get back to being the way they were or you know, whatever new normal turns out to be. Hope, hope we get there sooner than later. And uh, you know, I'm optimistic about what I see with our people and our clients, but I'm also realistic about there's, you know, it's been a hard year and we're, you know, we're just kind of still feel, everybody's got a little bit of fatigue, both on the client side and, and on our team side. What are the, what are the big, you know, what are the most kind of common, especially among your real estate customers, what are the kind of the common questions and concerns you're seeing now that are kind of unique to this environment? Um, you know, I'm sure PPP and how that works for, especially in the landlords and some of these other folks and, you know, uh, tax credits around or, you know, forgiven rent and, you know, I don't know, other, other things along those lines. Yeah, I would say it, it really depends on the type of real estate and maybe the market that the clients are in. You know, hospitality has a much different set of issues than multifamily. Um, in the PPP programs and the relief packages, if you follow what those have been um, geared around is keeping people employed. And so from a, if you're just a, say a, a, a lessor of um, you know, residential or commercial property, you, you're not, it's not an employee heavy type business. And I'd say it's a lot of the PPP incentives really haven't been, call it overly available to real estate. Um, and the ones, you know, the industries that are getting hammered really are getting hammered. You know, the hospitality, you know, it's, it's very hard to, you know, I think there's some, hopefully some, some sunlight ahead for that industry. But, you know, for, for them, it's been one set of issues. And then for the multifamily, it's been a different set of issues. You know, with multifamily, there's, there's kind of a few things that are affecting them. One would be because of the the way people are working remotely now, you know, the the market a, a market or a location that would have been really attractive two years ago might not be. Just for example, if you had an apartment building near a convenient metro stop somewhere near a major city, it would have been a trophy asset, right? Something that you knew high demand for it. With the change in demand for public transit and people working more remotely you might see a, a different set of things that people are really looking for. So instead of like convenience and access, you might be looking for a, a living space that also has a very convenient workspace. You might be, instead of somewhere with a really nice gym and really shared common features, you might be looking for something that you know, people may not be as interested in having to share space. And so, mm -hmm. you know, Close what- open space. Park. Yeah. So adapting to kind of changes in demand, because this is like this type of demand change is something I've never seen. Yeah, it's, um, th there's going to just be some definite shifts in what kind of real estate people are interested in using, you know, from, uh, from a business, an operating perspective, a lot of businesses have had people working remotely now for a year, probably questioning what, what their real estate needs are going to be in the future. So it really depends on what type of real estate you have, which market you're in, what made the asset attractive before and what might make it attractive now. And so just kind of adapting that way is what I see. Um, again, with, with my client base, I really haven't seen, um, I've seen a few cases where they've been really keen on the, the PPP programs and there's a few clients that have really benefited from those. Um, the other you know, there's been a lot of clients who haven't, uh, and there's a lot of challenges right now with, um, you know, stays on foreclosures or evictions and things like that. So, you know, people, if I'm handicapping at high level, you know, depending on, it really depends on your facts and circumstances to how much of an impact this had on you. If you had, as an example, um, 
you know, a, a low income area and you had tenants that may not be as concerned about credit scores and things like that, you're probably going to feel a bigger impact than somebody that has, you know, a, a really nice uh, building with really nice units that have good working spaces because it's just it's going to be a little bit of a change in demand and there's also going to be a little bit of a change in tenant behavior. Right, right. What strategies are you seeing or suggesting, you know, for those folks that are having, um, you know, a hit and or, you know, have that loss of income and now maybe you're at a point where they're struggling to make their underlying uh, um, uh, debt payments? Is there any strategies there that's helping these folks in hospitality and the hard hit multifamily? I think the the one strategy I would always advocate is just be be open and communicative with with lenders and other parties if if you have obligations that you're not able to meet. Um, I I don't think it's going to come as a mystery to anybody that like uh, for example if you're a movie theater, <laughs> I don't think your landlord would be surprised if you were to start talking to them pretty regularly about what what can we do here. <laughs> Um, but right. So, and, and by the same token, I think landlords have been a little bit concerned about being approached by people that didn't need help under the, you know, so, so landlords are really trying to figure out who it is that needs help or who's just trying to get themselves, you know, a little bit of a spiff. So what one back to the original point, I think one thing would be just be, be open and be in communication with the people that you have obligations to. So it, that'll give you the best chance of succeeding um, and, and getting them to cooperate with you. Um, I, I would certainly wouldn't ignore notices I, as painful as I'm sure they are to deal with and assure, you know, it, it stinks to not be able to meet your obligations. But I think being open and realistic about what you can do um, and you know, pulling whatever levers you can pull if you're when you're really in trouble. Yeah, I think that's great. Great advice. And it's interesting there how you said uh, how some are just uh, using it as an excuse to get better uh, deals. I, you know, I, I have a, a bit of commercial and, um, you know, the only real tenant that gave me problem was, was my uh, national, you know, credit quality, like the one that the banks want to see when they go to loan you money. That was the one that gave me trouble. All the local ones that the banks don't want to see, they were all great, worked really hard, worked well with me. And all the rest, and of course, the national uh, credit quality tenant was the uh, was the one that was a pain. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's because of that dynamic. I think you know, there's going to be a lot of landlords that are going to be skeptical as you know the first time they're approached. So, I, I think if you keep if you have a consistent message and you stay to that message and you're doing everything you can and you're being transparent, that's probably the the best path. You know, look for opportunities to get relief. I mean, there were some good tax provisions to be able to monetize losses that got put into some of the relief bills. Um, so, so kind of monitor what what options you have. Can, um, can you walk us through those real quick? Sure. Um, at so a high that, level, not in super detail, but yeah. Yeah, at, at a high level, um, very high level. One, the flavor of some of the relief bills on the tax side was to give the ability to get to monetize operating losses in a way that uh, you hadn't been able to because of some law changes in 2017. So you were able to carry losses back that you wouldn't have been able to carry back under the existing rules. They, they took away some limitations on your ability to use business losses to offset other types of income and, and pay less tax. So just those types of things and again, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds on it, but just they, they, the, the flavor was they tried to give uh, a way for people to more easily monetize losses. And like specifically there, right? So if you had you know, losses in 2020 where you were actually negative, you could go back and apply those to prior years and yep. then actually get cash back that you'd previously paid in taxes. Is that, That's right. Is that a good way to sum that up? Yeah, you're, the, the perfect scenario would have been that you had um, a lot of income coming into, say, 2020 from, from prior, prior year or two. And then in 2020, you were able to, you had a loss that you were then able to carry back and reclaim some of the tax that you had paid. Yep. Yep. Okay, good. I know Sean gets asked this question almost every day. You know, when are the foreclosures coming? Uh, <laughs> you have a different perspective from the distressed debt side. What are you seeing? 
Well, it's, so surprisingly, it's it's not going to surprise me that we see more of it. I think it'll trend that direction. Uh, I, I am actually a little bit surprised that we haven't seen more yet. Um, and some of it has to do with stays, like I mentioned before. There's, it's, you know, I think it's a good thing, but there, it's it's hard to evict people and it's hard to foreclose on property with the with some of the relief things that the local governments are doing. So I, I think that's um, we may once those um, stays are lifted and once things you know part of it too is the courts. It's hard to get on docket right now and it's hard to get things through a system that isn't working at full speed. So, you know, you may see more of that and you may see more, you know, as a lender, you might see more of your, you know, your borrowers getting into distress and looking for ways to exit. And so with, with distressed debt, you could look at it either as kind of on a single loan basis. How do I deal with a borrower who's in distress or more what I see more institutional players doing is might be looking at a portfolio of debt that, a you know, an institution wants to offload figuring out how to price that, buying it, and then working it as best you can. And so the the opportunities I think are going to be for the for the folks who are smart enough to price it right and find a good, you know, opportunity. Uh, there's there's there could be all kinds of opportunity with distressed debt for, you know, attractive purchases. And again, if you talk to most private equity type firms, they, they would tell you that a lot of their gains are on the buy side more than the sell side. You got to buy things at the right price. So if you've got a good system and a good way of, of valuing debt and really being able to look at collateral and being able to the, the deeper you can dive into the data and the more you're able to analyze it effectively, you know, the better you can calibrate your purchase price. Say one, one difference I'm seeing, at least within my own clients now, say between now and the last downturn, the last downturn, there were just a lot of heavy distress with a lot of institutions really offloading things at a very, you know, attractive price from a buyer's standpoint. Um, I, I haven't really seen that as much yet, maybe it'll get there. I mean, from from a more global perspective, I hope it doesn't get there. <laughs> but um, you know, just looking, so un- understanding how to price it, and then also understanding the nuances, at least from the tax side, the accounting side. You know, distressed debt has a whole host of issues that that we think a lot about, uh, and you know, clients I think are there's a little bit of a training or education on the types of issues that come along with that. Because you, you need to understand like how these things affect you as the buyer. If you're going to be effective at working the best deal, you, there's, there's times when you're also going to need to understand really how these same issues affect your borrowers or your tenants so that you know what, what would you know, the effect to them and you know what the important things are going to be for them to negotiate. Are you seeing transactions at all yet this round? Uh, in distressed or just generally distressed starting to see if I've got a few clients that are launching distressed funds. Um, so I am seeing some movement that way. I've got some clients that never stops doing distressed funds. So they're going to keep, keep doing it. I, I, but I would say I haven't seen quite as much of a lurch in the direction of distressed as I did the last time around, but it might be a little too early in the cycle still. And we may get there. Yeah, I got a lot of calls last March of like, hey, Sean, we used you last time and I'm starting a $100 million fund or, you know, a $500 million fund and we're going to go out and buy. And I'm like, maybe a little early. And that was a year ago. So, and it's still, yeah. still doesn't feel like it's really uh, coalesced yet. And I'm not 100% sure. It's not as clear to me that it will, but we'll, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, yeah, you think you would have seen some like in hospitality um, or something by now, but it seems like, you know, banks and everybody's being pretty patient so far. Yeah, surprisingly patient, to be honest. Uh, yeah. it, it, there hasn't been um, in the last time, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, whichever year you look at, you know, I think there was a little bit of an overreaction and a knee jerk and, you know, that, that created its own set of issues. Um, I, I'm actually impressed in a good way. I, I really haven't seen that much this time around. And you know, maybe maybe we learned something a decade ago, or maybe you know, maybe there's other reasons for it. But um, it, we're not at a point yet where I see 
like distressed debt being, uh, you know, everybody's doing it type of thing. Yeah. It's, it's more, it's been more targeted by clients who have had experience with it. Well, certainly the regulatory framework changed the last time around from forcing lenders to get bad assets off their book as quickly as possible to forcing them to make every accommodation possible to uh, borrowers. So that just, that alone tells me it's going to take on the residential side quite a bit longer. Of course, the rules didn't change nearly as much on the commercial side. Yeah. Do you see any specific asset classes that uh, people are raising money to really go after that they're excited about? Um, you know, there's some, like I mentioned, some starting to look to launch distressed funds. Um, I think others are really looking at, um, it, there's all kinds of funds that are being launched. And so I think it depends on what, what the expertise is of a given client. I can't say I've seen one, you know, I can't say I've seen all of my clients migrating in the same direction or looking at the same asset class. You know, multifamily has been really strong for the last decade, and I see it still being strong. It's very, uh, you know, desirable asset class that I see a lot of, say, but for 2020, it was a pretty quiet year until we got close to the end and then started seeing, you know, a lot of deals closing close to the end of the year. Um, I think that trend will continue. I think, you know, now that people maybe have our legs under us and probably in a position to make some decisions, I think you'll start seeing more activity. And I, I don't, you know, I guess the one, maybe one reason I'm on this side of the desk and clients are on the other side is maybe I'm not quite seeing what they're seeing as far as where the real opportunities are yet. But I, I, I would expect that there's going to be, you know, in the industries that have been the hardest hit, hospitality, like we talked about, maybe some of the commercial buildings, particularly um, you know, not so much industrial, but, you know, office, I think you'll, you'll see some ser- some real tweaks there to what people like, how the office spaces are configured, what is a desire, a good target asset. You might see different plans. We've talked to some architects and engineers about you know the types of conversations they're having. They've been through a year where a lot of it was repurposing space to put people farther apart, have less people in the office at the same time, more sanitation type stations. You know, and so having, I think, you know, the, the open plans where you have a hundred people in a room and in a war room that doesn't, I, I, that may be going the way of the dodo, but you know, who, again, I, I think it's to some degree. I mean, there's plenty of studies saying it's just not a great way to work and concentrate. Like it takes us something like 15 minutes after an interruption to get back into the zone. But yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and talk about, um, you know, some of the changes we might see coming. I think, uh, you know, one that gets talked about a lot is elimination of the 1031, which is part of uh, Biden's, uh, you know, proposed tax changes. Um, Did you see a lot of movement last year of people saying, well, I don't think that's going to happen, but it might. So I'm going to move some stuff around or people kind of not to haven't been too worried about it. What have you seen? Any, any action by uh, clients around that? I, I've had a number of clients that did 1031 exchanges, but I, I'd say I, I thought it was more in the normal course than it was specifically because they were concerned about losing the opportunity. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's certainly something for people to keep an eye on. Yeah. We, I haven't really seen a, anything uh, formal on that yet other than proposals. So if it starts to get real traction, um, then certainly be aware that that may accelerate some 1031s or that may prevent some 1031s from happening. But I I would say, at least from what I've seen so far, the the notion that it may go away hasn't really changed behavior, but maybe that is in part because we've heard, it's been several years now that I've continue to hear that that's something they're looking at taking away and there might be a little bit of a you know boy who cried wolf type of feeling (laughs) um, where it's been yeah you've told me I'm going to lose it at some point if I lose it I lose it but we're we're aware of that so so I'm not really seeing a a huge reaction to it but once 
you know, once pencil meets paper and, or, you know, I guess the computer version of that <laughs> bills are written, um, we, we may see some change in behavior and people wanting to accelerate those. But uh, to date, I have not seen the potential loss of 1031s driving a lot of people to do them. Okay. And what's, what are the chances? I mean, I, I was shocked uh... I was actually a, a benefited from one of these, but um, shocked that sometimes when these, you know, tax law changes go into, you know, effect, they can be retroactive, you know? So you're doing a 1031 exchange right now. Let's say this gets a bunch of steam on it by the end of the year. What are the chances that it's retroactive for, you know, 2021? Is that something you see happen a, a lot, very often, very rarely? Very rarely on the federal side do have I seen things take retroactive effect. Um, it, usually there would cer- certainly expect some notice of that if that was the intention. Um, but it, some states like California have been a little bit more, uh, or let's say maybe a little bit less considerate about making things retroactive. Um, but on the, the federal side, I, I would expect, you know, if I'm handicapping it, and this is not insider baseball because I don't know, but if I'm handicapping it, I would, I, I would expect any change like that to be effective on the date of enactment, or maybe they'll give a small window and they'll say maybe starting in 2022 that, that that's no longer going to be part of the code. That, that's what I would expect. That happens. There's a gold rush. I mean, there'll be a big rush to move stuff around. It'll be really interesting. So it's it's something for our investor customers just to keep an eye on, both for their own interests and for all the activity that might happen if it does leave a window. Yeah, and I, I think another thing for investors to keep their mind on, which is the eyes on, which is in the same kind of vein. You know, it, it, I, I'll try not to be political here, but I, I would say it, it's not hard to overlook the fact that the former president was a real estate guy and that there's a lot of people that don't have the most favorable favorable opinion about the former president. And so I think there's not there's going to be maybe some political wind to do things that would be detrimental to real estate. Um, be in reaction to that. And I just from an out, I'm not certainly a, a political analyst or anything, but I think w- with the prior administration made a point of kind of undoing and you know, poking the eye of the administration before them and a few things that they changed. So it, it, if, if you're, if you believe like I do, that there's a lot of childish like motivation in some of the politics that we see, um, it, it's not hard to imagine that there's going to be a few changes coming down down the road that are not going to be favorable for real estate. Yeah, I, I, I worry about that a little bit. My only like consolation or you know that I take there is that there's an awful lot of powerful Democrats that are you know heavily invested in you know Pelosi's husband, plenty of others that are um, that are very real estate heavy too. So fingers crossed, we're 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 safe, but yeah, you, you, you never know. It's, certainly- it's just yeah, kind of just a question of whether I know it hurts me, but it hurts you more. So I like it. Is that it could be the flavor. <laughs> Ouch. I've yeah. Been, I've been trying to follow all the changes. So the CFPB is reviewing qualified mortgage rules. I'm interested to hear if a, a state um, taxes changes at all. Um, and here at the state of California, um, there, a reporter got back to me today about AB 1199, an excise tax on uh, property owners in California who own more than 10 properties. So real estate is rental income. Yeah, rental income. So they're definitely, real estate is seen as that, that bucket of uh, some money that they can go after, you know, with rent control things uh, in place. It's, it could definitely put the squeeze on some investors. Do you, have, do you take a lot of questions from real estate investors that are nervous about not just national, but state tax regulation? Oh, for sure. And, and I, I don't think that's limited to real estate. I, I think there's, you know, one of the reasons I think, uh, you know, a California or New York, some of the, the states that do impose a lot of income taxes and other taxes, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of questions about whether people want to stay there and whether businesses want to stay there. So not so much specific to real estate, but just as a, you know, from the regulatory environment to the tax environment, to the desirability and affordability, there's just a lot of reasons why people are maybe looking at different markets as being attractive. I mean, you see a 
Idaho, Utah, Texas, Florida, um, you know, don't mean to limit it to just those states for any of your listeners who live elsewhere, but there's a lot of states that I think are seeing a lot of, uh, you know, new residents because of the, you know, they offer what those, the, the people moving out of these, these certain states see as a better opportunity and a better environment to live and run a business. But then they're, they move there and find out they're in the same financial situation. So <laughs> maybe you should expect some things happening there as well. I don't know. Yeah, right. Las Vegas, possibly. right? Lost a lot eight. of those states are in, in not in great shape uh, right. either, right? I, I always love how California gets called a welfare state, but it's one of the few states that contributes more to the federal government than it takes. So most of the company con- states calling California a welfare state are actually welfare states. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Is Las Vegas still considering an income tax? I, I forgot to look at that before the show. Nevada. Nevada, yeah. Hmm. But it takes a constitutional amendment anyways. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that's not going to happen in another state. We're all, all sort of facing these uh, holes in budgets is, I guess, the point. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I think the thing that people that I, you know, people might want to keep an eye on is just there are, there's a lot of trends that are emerging from, you know, in reaction to the last year, year and a half. You know, some of it, I think, was underway a little bit where people are looking for ways to escape high tax, high regulation, that that trend is going to continue. Another part of it is and maybe adds on to it and snowballs it a little bit is with people, companies now discovering that they can do this with a remote workforce. And you think there's going to be less importance on maybe where the workforce is located. And there's just a diff- little bit of a different business dynamic as well as, you know, some other things that I think will contribute to growth in some of these other states. Do we think being able to write off uh, state taxes will come back? Uh, so- yeah. I, honestly, if, if I were trying to uh, ad, you know, advise the, the Democrats, I would certainly say that that's something that would be viewed favorably by most of their constituents. Um, you know, the, the flip side, I suppose, is um, if you're advocating the other direction, you'd say, you know, the, the rest of the country maybe shouldn't be subsidizing higher tax states for charging higher taxes and, and reducing the federal taxes of their residents that way. But, you know, I, I, honestly, if, if I were advising the, the Democrats on this one, I would say, you know, that's something you should really look hard at because it would be viewed very favorably by a lot of people that support you. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we'll see that one come back. And the, the, the argument, you know, that is on the other side is a little bit of a red herring because most of the states that benefit from SALT are actually the ones that contribute more to the federal government than they get in return. So despite the the feeling that it's it contributes less and I don't know how true that actually is yeah I, I, and by the way I think most political arguments are red herrings so <laughs> I agree with you <laughs> um what uh, uh I'm just curious opportunity zones do you have a lot of clients that took them very seriously I think a lot of California investors I know got excited they read it and they're like oh California doesn't apply I have to pay taxes now <laughs> did you have a lot of people dig into that or shined it on? No, I, I think it was a very popular thing, actually. And it was, a, it's one of the few things I can remember in the last decade that's gotten a lot of bi, bi, you know, bipartisan support for it. And it even if you don't have, say, a, a state benefit, the federal benefit might be compelling enough for people to do it anyway. Because right. the, that, the way that program works is you, you, you end up deferring the tax on the gain from, say, the first sale that, that gives rise to the gain that you reinvest. The real benefit of the program is that when you have the second sale for, after you've been in for 10 years, you, know, you don't pay federal tax on that gain as long as you've met all the requirements. And so it's a, it's a really, I, I thought it was a really clever, really intriguing program. And I have seen um, you know, quite a bit of interest, both from clients who want to invest as well as from clients who want to set up the funds and bring investors in. Aaron's also done a good job of pointing out that it doesn't have to be like kind. And so you have this ability to, to transfer, you know, asset classes and move. And uh, that also, I think, is an underappreciated piece of that. 
I've had quite a few conversations with crypto and uh, Tesla stock owners for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, and if you one other nuance, if you compare it to a 1031, is with the 1031 you have to reinvest everything, and the first dollar that you don't reinvest is taxable, kind of on down. So, 1031 you really have to reinvest everything. Where with the Opportunity Zone program, you only had to reinvest the gain portion. So the big, um, you know, that was a really big attractive thing because it required a lower investment. And um, I I just thought it was, again, I thought it was a very clever program. You transfer your gain out and then, but you can put the the basis back in your pocket. Interesting. I didn't even know that one. So that's great. Early on, I, I was doing some research on it and I interviewed some people in downtown Riverside where I live is an opportunity zone and it happens to be our mayor's innovation district. So a lot of attention. I met with economic development people and I happened to know a lady in town that was buying a lot of real estate. I asked her, I'm like, do you know about this? And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I, I talked to a few businesses I knew were moving into her building. I'm like, if you're raising money, do you realize that you could be raising money for your small business? You don't have to own the real estate. You could be doing this. They're like, no idea what you're talking about. I just don't think the word ever got out. So you could have two businesses being taking advantage of opportunity zones and nobody was paying attention. It's sad. Yeah, and it's it's tough because it was as with any program, and I'd say the same thing of the PPP and some other things, you know, they're they get so difficult to administer and there's so many like foot faults and you know steps that you have to manage. So I think part of it, maybe people weren't familiar with it. Another part of it might be people hear about it and start to look into it and realize, wow, this is really going to be complicated. And so there's there's probably some a lot of people that get driven away from programs they could benefit from simply because they they are necessarily so complicated. Some some things I would definitely like to bring up to ask you because I need a reminder. I've had some people in 1031 exchanges think that oh, I didn't identify in 45 days. You know what? I'm just going to do an opportunity zone. <laughs> from, from what I understand, that is not the case. You can't switch from a failed 45-day uh, <laughs> uh, 1031 exchange and flip it to an opportunity zone. You would have to do that before the 45 days uh, identification period. Um, I'm actually not sure on that one because I think with the opportunity zone program, you actually have a you know, a window of time after the gain is originally recognized to reinvest. I'm not sure if you have a, so I'll call it a busted 1031 where you go into something intending to do it. And then for whatever reason you can't, you know, there you'd normally have just, it's just a taxable transaction instead of a 1031 exchange. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of a restriction on, on being able to then turn around and, and take that gain and put it into an opportunity zone. It, it's possible that that, that there is a limitation I'm not thinking about, but I'm not aware of one. Because of the hot market, I only want to bring it up because the opportunity zone, you actually have more time to to identify and then also to do, you have to do a fair amount of improvements. Can you mention that? What What is it? You have to improve it by 50%? Yeah, I think you have to put in um, 50, uh, it's either 50 or 100. And I'm sorry, I don't remember, but you, you have to spend a lot to renovate or you, you have to put a lot of money into the asset. So it isn't like you can just go buy a rental building and start renting it. So you actually would you have to go in and make some substantial improvements to the building part of the property. You have to put money into the business. So it isn't just um, it isn't just that you buy something and you're good. You actually have to. There are some things. There are some steps you have to take. And drawing a little bit of a parallel to the REIT rules. You know, REITs have these income and asset testing requirements that you have to meet. There's something similar to that in the opportunity zone world where you have to look at income and asset testing and make sure that they're complying with the op zone requirements. So just that people on your desk? That's a lot of work. <laughs> oh, it, it does. Uh, some some of those do and others, uh, you know, I have clients that invest and we also represent a few firms that are doing the opportunity zone funds. Mm. So from a testing standpoint, advising, you know, telling them wh- when they need to do what, you know, it, it has been a v- bit of a challenge because it, especially with some of the well-intentioned COVID relief bills, you know, the periods that you have to do things kind of shift a little bit as they give you a little bit more time to do X or Y because, you know, from say March of last year to July of last year in particular, 
the world was a little bit frozen. So yeah, we, we get involved in helping people manage through that process, but it just people should be aware that it is a process. I was fascinated because they launched the Opportunity Zones and they continued to legislate around it. <laughs> so they launched it and they kept on changing the rules. That's very uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, it, it is. But if, if you look at that tax bill from 2017, it was a very significant bill. You know, we, we were still getting guidance on some of the more complicated provisions in January of this year. So, and it's it's not just opportunity zones, it's all of it. When Whenever you have a really robust tax legislation, the, the guidance that follows that is going to be coming out for years. Right. And then some cases probably in the rest, even after that. Yeah. And probably a little bit early for cases on anything right now. And especially with the courts being, you know, yeah. not working at full steam. I think there's going to like the normal judicial type of guidance that you might get. You're not going to see on in a normal kind of cadence. Yeah. Yeah. Don't um, want any clients that become a case, right? <laughs> That's not always a good thing. Yeah, unless they win, then then unless you're happy about it. But you, you'd rather not fight the battle if you don't have to. For sure. You don't want to be the subject of a private letter ruling? <laughs> yeah, not not an unfavorable one, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, Opportunity Zones have lost some benefits. Uh, if you did an Opportunity Zone, was it by the end of 2019, there was an opportunity to get, was it a 15% credit towards the taxes owed? Is that how that worked? Yeah. So that what they did was if you just because of the way the program was laid out and the timing, um, if you invested, I think it was before the end of 19, 15% of that gain that you originally recognized, you got um, a relief you didn't have to pay tax on. I think it's dropped down to 10% or 5%. Um, so th- there's a little bit less of a spiff as time went on, which made it a little bit of a balancing act between do I dare kind of do this, not knowing what all of the rules are yet, but knowing I want the full spiff, or do I wait and see, make sure I really understand the state of play, have more defined rules and understand that I'm going to get the trade-off is I'm going to get a little bit less of a benefit. You still have people contacting you about the opportunity though? We do. Okay. What other uh, opportunities are real estate investors bugging you about these days? Oh, I, I think everybody's keeping a close eye on you know what happens with tax legislation. So I, I think the general feeling is that tax rates are likely to go up and not down, and understanding whatever carve outs there are is going to be important. You know the the carried interest has been another one, something like. 1031 exchanges that you know we've been hearing about for quite a while that people you know, the that tax break may be taken away um, and for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with that term I've heard it called carried interest or promote or you know profit participation there's a few different ways you'll hear it it has to do with normally a fund sponsor um, if their deal is successful and, and everybody does well, the fund sponsors do better as the deal does better. So a fund sponsor might get 5% of the profits if the deal is like a, you know, successful but not great. And they might get 20% of the profits if the deal is really good. Um, and it, you know, the numbers vary by deal and by sponsor. But the idea is that the better the deal does, the more the sponsor earns as a, as a carried interest or a promote or profit. And so there's been the notion for a while now that that whatever they're earning really should be considered earning and not something that's you know the equivalent of a capital investment. And so that's of all of the things I I guess I'm getting the most questions on or hearing the most about. It's probably how likely is it that they actually make those rules effective? The 2017 had a bill that um, that they did look at things of like a three-year holding period or less. Um, is being subject to, to, to not to capital gains rates, but to ordinary rates for, for you know, certain situations. Um, real estate wasn't as affected by that as maybe a hedge fund would have been because of the type of gains you would get on a real estate deal relative to a, you know, a hedge fund that's selling securities or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, getting a lot more questions now about what, how likely is it that that rule changes? What should I be ready for? Do I need to to tweak my agreements? How should I be thinking about things? I'd, I'd say of all of the topics that I'm getting you know, questions on, it's like, where, where are tax rates going? 
Um, what are going to be some carve outs or, you know, are there, what, what benefits do you expect us to lose? And then the, at the top of that list is will will carried interest end up on the chopping block and are we going to end up being treated as, as ordinary income on that instead of, you know, capital or section 1231 gain, which is the way it's worked historically. So you're offering therapy sessions like right after CPA sessions, I see. <laughs> yeah, or, or just happy hour. I don't know. <laughs> uh, how, how are you communicating all this? There, there could be a lot of change this year. Do you, you have a plan on you know how you're wanting real estate investors to plug in and sort of figure out what's going on? Yeah, it, 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 I'm trying not to cry wolf on stuff. So if you... If you pay attention to the news every day, your life is going to be a lot more stressful than it is if you pay attention to time to time or have somebody monitoring the right things for you. So it, one thing I'd tell people is maybe don't pay attention every single day. But on when when there's news of you know a proposed bill or something starts to look a little bit more formal, we'll certainly be communicating that with our clients, letting them know what we're seeing and hearing. Um, like I said, the hasn't been a whole lot that I felt like I had to communicate yet. Um, other, other than, you know, there's a lot of changes that might happen when they do. And as these things get more clear, we'll let you know. But I, I worry a little bit about, um, you know, taking a proactive step to something that you don't need to. And I don't mean for that to sound bad. It's good to be proactive and not reactive, but you also maybe don't want to go through the expense and brain damage. You don't want to change your business. You don't want to make a hasty decision because you're worried about what might happen. So I'd say I, I would try to tell people to stay the course, focus on running the business as well as you can run the business. You know, do the best that you can. And if there's a situation where we, we start to see something concrete, definitive, um, then if there's a need to plan around that, we, you know, we'll do what we can. But, you know, again, I, I would try not to get too focused on possible changes and stay focused on making sure you're doing the best you can run in your business. Very good. Anything else we should know headed into 2021 before we end? Oh, I wish I had something smarter to say. That's <laughs> uh, just, I, I think the, the biggest, again, from a business standpoint, I think just, I, I worry the most about keeping, preserving culture while we're all working remotely. And I think, you know, we've been on survival mode and we've been able to you know, stay the course so far. But, you know, from a culture standpoint, from a people standpoint, best advice I can give is people really matter. You know, on the client side, your team really matters. Um, relationships really matter. And so we've, we've kind of um, you know, had to put some of maybe the normal relationship management stuff that we would do on the, on the, the side because we can't be, you know, we haven't been able to be in person. So I'd say, you know, going into 2021, I would I just want everybody to be mindful about how 2020 has affected all of us and, you know, really be aware that, that ultimately everything we do is centered around people and, and making sure we're doing right, the right things for people. And so that's probably the best advice I could give. Sounds good. If people want to get a hold of you, where should they be going? Oh, so you could find me on the Armanino website. That's A-R-M-A-N-I-N-O-L-L-P.com. Uh, name is David Erard. It's a little it's a funny last name, E-R-A-R-D. Um, or if there's a way I can send you a, an email address to put up or, uh, um, but it's just my first name, david.erard at armaninollp.com. If anybody wants to reach out. Um, and my phone number is uh, 949. Hang on. Sorry, I'll have to look it up, actually, because I don't call <laughs> myself very often. <laughs> uh, the phone direct dial would be 949-396-1551. That's good. Thanks so much, David, for joining us. All yeah, right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that Join the Community and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.